new ways to play bad games. All this and more coming up on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Level 1 Gaming. Strike the Empire back. And I'm getting a woody. All this and more coming up on this week's show. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Retro. And we've got another guest with us this week. We're joined by Glenn, a.k.a. Casual Retro Gamer, who has an enviable, at least to me, three-letter YouTube alias. He got in there quick with youtube.com forward slash at CRG if you want to go and subscribe. And I highly recommend you do. Glenn's got great videos on repairs, upgrades, tinkering in general uh, and there's a good sprinkling of regular Amiga content in there too. I know there's plenty of Amiga fans who listen to this show so you'll like Glenn too if you don't already know about him. Um, Glenn tell us about your latest video. This is not an Amiga related one but it's something pretty grim that's turned up. If I was Dave I might say equally as grim as an Amiga. Um, (laughs) Something pretty grim that turned up from a warehouse full of pigeon poop didn't it? Yes, that's right. It was this PC engine. That's the Ooh. case of it. Still looking rather nasty indeed. I haven't quite decided mm-hmm. what to do with this yet, though. Watch I know it. everyone's. Cl- I know everyone is cleaning theirs, but I've got this crazy idea to maybe try and maintain the filth on it. <laughs> yeah, Not the patina. Sure that, the though. patina. The patina of it. Yes. Yeah. Although, can you call pigeon poop? Bettina? <laughs> I'm not quite so, sure, to be honest. The PC Engine came from a warehouse. It's the same warehouse that my PC20 came from that I've worked on. Um, yes. chap called Ginger Hippie Gaming, also well worth following. Sai, uh, he's been helping to um, get access to that uh, because it's been a closely guarded secret that none of us have been allowed to know where it is or get into it. But he's managed yes, to get, get into it um, um, and send out bits of kit, including some PC Engines. It just... Um, I don't want to put any spoilers out for your current video, but just describe what it was like, the inside of that PC engine that you fixed. So, yeah, the inside of that, that was one of those instances, you know, when you open something up thinking, I'm going to fix this. You open it up, look at it, and very <laughs> quickly decide that this might actually be a lost cause. Yeah, It was yeah. absolutely caked in rust. Absolutely terrible looking. But it did clean up, not is, too bad. Yeah. Although, as you say, I don't want to give too much away, but it did yeah. turn out not too bad in the end. I watched it last night. I, uh, yeah, I watched it last night. I was amazed, amazed how bad it was because a lot of these things, a lot of these things from this warehouse, they've been, um, I'm trying to, they've been pooped on, pooped on yeah. by these pigeons. And it's yeah. very much on the surface. And sometimes when you open it up, they're not that bad inside. And I was expecting you to open this up, and you were you were you were talking about how bad it's going to be, and I thought it's not going to be that bad inside. It was much worse, far yeah, far yeah. more. Worse no, than uh, no, you're right because I've seen some of the stuff that uh, Ginger Hippie himself had opened up, and inside it almost looked like new. So I was mm. expecting, looking at the outside, maybe you know a little bit of surface rust or something like that, or just a little bit of dirt ingress just around the sides of the case where the ports are. But it was very far from that. Yeah. Well, do check out the video. Um, it involves a lot more than just cleaning. Glenn's had to uh, use a lot of his skills and a lot of his tools to get that up and working again. Or does he? We don't want to spoil it. Does he get it working? Oh, no, <laughs> Go and watch the video yeah. and, and find out. Um, <laughs> excellent. Anyone else? Any, anything to add this week? How are you guys? I'm. I'm 
may be interrupted this morning as we're recording with delivery of my Amiga 1200 motherboard. So oh. uh, just to put out there, I, I'm, I don't hate the Amiga, as, uh, as, as uh, Neil likes to say. I, I am about to build one today. Hopefully, this is the last piece I need. I can put the whole Checkmate thing together and get it working. I'm sure there'll be something I missed, but I'm really looking forward to that. It's uh, it's on Royal Mail, special delivery, special delivery, guaranteed by one, so it might be here while we record. I'm quite excited about it. Nice. Wow. The highlight of the show. Sounds cool. I've <laughs> also bought a Mega ST4 and an IBM Model M keyboard this week. I've been ridiculous with, with, with buying stuff. Yeah, you All sighed as you said that, and I know why you sighed, because I know how much you spent on that, Because just because you wanted the keyboard, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, the Atari... Atari used a Cherry MX black keyboard on the Mega ST range, not on the Mega STE range. On the Mega STE range, they just used a cheap keyboard, same with the TT. So if you want an Atari ST with a mechanical keyboard, you have to buy a Mega ST keyboard. I've even noticed that there's quite a few Mega STs appeared on eBay and they have the Mega STE keyboard because someone's done exactly what I'm going to do buy it, swap the keyboard off, and then punt off the, the Mega ST with the Mega STE keyboard. Ooh. It works. Yeah. And I'm in no position to take the mickey out of you here, Dave, because I'm constantly looking for the fabled Amiga 500 chicken lips mechanical keyboard and mm. things like that. So, uh, you know, it's it's when you've come that far in building a system and you just want that last piece, you can get slightly obsessed with finding that last piece. <laughs> Yeah, but there's always yeah. another piece to find after that. You'll come up with something. I hope not. I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's go now into Dave with your housekeeping. Housekeeping time with Dave is here. Have fear. He'll keep things clear. His housekeeping time with Dave. Not much to say this week. Um, there's been a few comments about the CRTs from last week. I was a little bit excited about the prospect of possibly new CRTs, even though I'm very sceptical about it. I don't really believe there's new CRTs. I just want to get to the bottom of what they're saying is a new CRT and find out what it really is. Um, a couple of people have contacted me, and uh, it looks like these might be reclaimed tubes from old obsolete technology being put in new shells along with new PCBs. Neil? Yeah, I really enjoyed last week's show with Reese, And um, I found as I was listening, I almost went into kind of fourth or fifth presenter mode, chatting away to the radio myself as if I was in the, on the show, interjecting. And it got me thinking, I wonder how many other people do that listening, shout at the show. Um, yeah. And if you, if you feel that you have to shout at the show because you've got a point to make, go to our subreddit, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro and shout into the messages there so we can hear what you've got to say. Um, and yeah, when it comes to CRTs, there's, there's sort of, there's two main bits, aren't there? There's the tube itself and there's the board. And it's going to be a lot easier for companies to come up with new boards, surely, than it is to mm -hmm. make new tubes. Um, so I'm not surprised that you're getting to the bottom of this and finding that there are recycled parts. Um, did you find any more info on it? That's as far as that's as far as I found out. But if I do find out more, I'll, I'll come back to it. Yeah, I, it just makes me think about these brand new um, slimline floppy drives with a USB connection. They're in a nice little shell you see on eBay, and they're not new. 
what they are is that someone's taken a laptop and they've they've taken the drive out of the laptop and put it on there. Now, I'm okay with that. In fact, I'm pleased that that's happening. I like that the that, that old technology is finding a new use this way. But I sent one off to my friend Pillock, and he got it, and he opened it up, and it turned out it was all rusty inside because it had been <laughs> wet at some point before it was put in this. So they, they, they'd missed the quality control on that. But it's it, they're not the only things doing that. I've noticed cards on eBay, presumably um, GeForce FX5 cards that have come from laptops or motherboards being recycled, they've t- took the chip off it and they've made a card from it. So I think that, that kind of thing is great. But I think that's what we're going to find out with these, with these CRTs. I think when, we, when someone properly does it, they'll find out it's, a, it's not on YouTube. Yeah, there's a big difference between refurbed and missold. Um, we just got to be very careful that you, you buy on the right side of that line. Uh, quick question for you, Glenn. Are you a CRT snob? Do you lean towards CRTs or do you not really care if you've got a flat screen connected to your retro? I would. I wish I had more space for CRTs, let me put it like that. I, I do yeah. have a few of them, but the bench space here around me just doesn't allow to have them set up on any sort of permanent basis. So it is just the, the flat screens for me. I mean, it's the argument in the modern day. It was the argument for flat screens when they first came out. Look how much yeah. space you can save. <laughs> you know, um, I, I adopted flat screens long before they were really ready for gaming. You know, the, the refresh rates and things were just too slow compared to CRTs at the time. But I just wanted to reclaim that desk space. So I did. Yeah, um, I mean, saying that so- now when I did recently hook up uh, my Neo Geo to a CRT. Having played it mostly on my TV, which is a, down the bottom end of the room here, it's a 42-inch LCD, but hooking it up to a 14-inch CRT, and, I mean, it just looks amazing. It's almost mm. as if you get a step up in quality of the graphics on the screen. It just looks more natural on mm. the CRT than it does on the LCD. I think we'll get there with filters. With um, as display technology moves forward and filters move forward, we're going to get to a point where the best display might not be CRT. Yeah. Any more housekeeping, Dave? We, we've not this week. There. That was my fault. Not Sorry. this week. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> I've got a little bit of housekeeping then. Um, I just wanted to announce three workshops that are now available to book at the Retro Collective. So um, in the cave, we have a 3D printing workshop for uh, beginners, even if you haven't got a 3D printer yet. That's going to be hosted by Richard Horn, uh, co-author of 3D Printing for Dummies and just uh, an all-round incredible um, incredibly skilled 3D printer and designer. So it's going to go into 3D printing as well as designing 3D modeling and things like that. Um, soldering with Mark Fix's stuff. Again, a beginner's course. If you're just looking to learn how to solder, pick up the basics, then uh, Mark can teach you. And then a slightly more advanced course, if you've got some basic electronics repair skills, CRT repairs um, with Rob from Resurrection Retro. He's my go-to CRT repair man um, and uh, incredibly skilled. And hopefully he's going to conduct this workshop in a safe way and everybody will make it out alive. So if you want to book yourself a slot on any of these workshops, head to retrocollective.co.uk and you can see that or just come along to the cave to do some gaming. Okay, I'll stop now because I'm drifting into uh, becoming a sponsor of the show, Dave. You're not a sponsor of the show. But yeah, I, I would I would love to go to all three. I'm too far away, but all three of those those are three real real experts. Um, Richard, I, I could sit and listen to listen to Richard talk all day. Richard's so interesting. He knows so much stuff. 
yeah and his enthusiasm as well is mm. infectious so uh yeah highly recommend those courses okay let's go into this week's stories our first story this week was submitted by Dr. Local, and I think it's something we can all relate to. Level one gaming. It's exactly what it sounds like. Picking out the greatest first levels um, of games, the, the greatest first levels of all time of any game that you want to pick it from. The level we get to actually see and not the ones you need to be skilled to see. Uh, the article is published in the Metro. It's it's a reader submission section, which might explain why it digs a little bit deeper than the usual retro gaming fodder that we see in traditional media. It acknowledges fodder. microcomputers exist. Yeah, um, not just console-based. And um, in it, they've picked their top 15 first levels, what they consider to be the most icon iconic of all time. So um, I'll mention some of them for you. Not all of them, but we'll just have a skim through. First up, okay, pretty predictable super mario on the nes and, and the writer does actually start by saying let's get this one out of the way um it, it does enough. deserve its place in the list mm. and in the same vein so does sonic sonic the hedgehog on the mega drive is on the list which incidentally is one of the favorites at the cave speed running level one at sonic uh the record by our visitors here so far is 29 seconds to complete it that's on a, a pal version i think you can do it a bit quicker on other versions so 29 seconds um other things on the list. Now, this one confused me a little bit. Ghouls and Ghosts, but on the Mega Drive. Now, um, I agree with it. It's a tough game. Um, but is it any different to the arcade? It's, it's an arcade port, so why wouldn't you pick the arcade version? I don't know. Um, the SNES is represented with, with Contra 3 and Star Fox. The arcade is also represented with R-Type, Operation Wolf, Final Fight, and then on the home micros, we see Robocop, specifically on the Commodore 64, and Turbo Outrun on the Commodore 64. So my guess is that the author of this article owned a Commodore 64 and a Mega Drive. That, that's why we're leaning into those systems a little bit. Um, there are more Mega Drive games, and then it culminates, this will make Chris happy, it culminates with 1993's Doom Level 1. Um, E1 so Exactly. It, it is a list that's easy to pick fault in because of the sheer range of choice from video gaming history that you can pick from. We're all going to be influenced by our own experiences. If you died a million times on Manic Miner's first screen, then you might consider that to be an iconic level one. So I don't think there's much right or wrong to pick out in this article. I just picked it out because I thought it was a really interesting conversational piece. So thank you, Dr. Local, for submitting it. So let's discuss our level ones. Uh, starting with you, Dave. What are your thoughts on this and some of your favorite first levels? I really like the idea of the article. I'd never, I'd never thought about level one gaming before. It's, it's a revelation in terms of presenting the idea that way. It's great. Um, how could they miss out Manic Miner? Well, Manic Miner, the central cavern, is level one game. This is it's that described. So I'm glad you mentioned it. They do have a decent list, though, and it does depend on 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 their experience. You can't expect someone to experience the whole gamut of of, of gaming ever. Um, Ghosts and go uh, and ghosts. I know the CPC version took some real liberties, and you you didn't have you didn't get hit and then drop your armor and that although there are a couple of homebrew versions that are fantastic so i don't know why the mega drive version that's picked but also the c64 version of robocop is okay but the the, the cpc and the specy versions are, are more iconic with that that music um there's games too that you miss out on a on big things 
Grisor, which is known as Contran consoles, and Turrican 2, for example, as the levels progress, the, the perspective changes in Grisor and Turrican 2 turns into a little shooter uh, in, in one of the later levels. And lots of people will never have seen that and don't know it exists because you don't get that. Turrican 2 in particular is murder hard. Neil? Yeah, Grisor, that's when you get to the end of the level and then it mm-hmm. turns into a third-person yeah. sort of... Uh, almost like a dungeon crawler. <laughs> you but know, there's also a, a, yeah. after that, you're then jumping up, going up the way rather than along the way in it as well on Grizer. So, mm. uh, yeah, and uh, and unless you're watching someone who knows what they're doing, you, you may have never seen that. Uh, mm. Particularly you get Turrican, that in, Turrican's so you get, hard. You mentioned, um, well, I mentioned Robocop because it's in the list, but you get that as well at the end of the level where you get the crosshairs, don't you? And you have to... Mm rescue the hostage um on mm. some versions not all versions so um yeah but that's beyond the first level the games that i tend to play though don't fit in here uh, I, I thought about it. strategy games in particular the first level is almost always a tutorial and it's really memorable you go through it as a chore um and i did have a think though and baldur's gate one and two both have a sort of tutorial initial area, which is fairly, fairly memorable. Candlekeep for Baldur's Gate 1 and John Irenicus's dungeon for um, Baldur's Gate 2. Both you have to finish to move on to the real game, but more so in Baldur's Gate 2, the initial area is actually fun and modestly challenging and its own sort of little mini um, version of the bigger game there. So that's quite memorable. Um, thinking back, uh, Chris... No, you just raised a really good point about um, good game design because, I mean, the older games that we're talking about in this story, they, they did the tutorial through stealth. You know, you would learn how to play the game in the early levels without realising it, whereas modern gaming literally does things like, you know, press triangle to open the gate and press X to pick up the gun. So, yeah, it's easily missed. Good point. If you go back to it, I mean, if you look back at Lemmings, for example, the first few levels of Lemmings are here's a new concept we'll introduce you to, and then you you have to do this at the same time as doing something else. So that I guess the first level of Lemmings isn't memorable because, well, maybe it is. Maybe it's the first level because you know the first level of Lemmings. I, I can picture it. You dig straight down and you're, you're out. Maybe it's just it a single memorable. screen, isn't it, the first level? Yeah. And you just you dig yeah. down, yeah. Mud. Um, yeah, Lemmings, it's sort of a... Yeah, a training tool for men to learn how to multitask level by level. <laughs> um, That's what I mean. Get very far. <laughs> <laughs> I loved Lemmings. Uh, thinking back to the CPC and more so the ST, I would often get a pile of new pirate games and I'd play each one briefly. I'd see the first level and I'd never come back. Other times, if there was a trainer on the disc, I'd turn the trainer on and power through the game until I was bored and never come back to it. So this, this first level gaming... It's such an important thing to think about because that is what people saw. So many people only see the first level. Yeah, great idea. You just touched on something there, which um, which rings true with me. I, you know, I, I like that this article focuses on the first level because effort in gaming can be linked to perceived value. We've talked about this before. So, did you buy mm. the game? Did you have to work to afford the game? Um, if you did, then you're probably going to sink hours into getting something out of the game. Or did you steal your sister's Nick Kershaw cassette? you know, put some tape over it so that you could pirate a game onto that tape, reuse the tape. Um, You've still got to invest a certain amount of time in loading the game because it's a tape game. So you'll put a bit of effort in, but probably less than if you bought it. Um, Maybe you overwrote uh, a cover disc, an SD format cover disc and pirated a game onto that. 
Um, oh, yeah. So, or if we consider the modern day, uh, it might just be that you downloaded the game from an online store without your parents' permission. Maybe they didn't lock down the account. Maybe you pinched their credit card. Um, I don't think many, you know, 40 plus gamers are sneaking around pinching their parents' credit cards to buy things on Steam. <laughs> just trying to give some context here. Dave? Or maybe it was one of the millions of games that seem to be given away free now. And you're, someone hmm. will say, this game's free, and you go and you click and you download it, and you you don't really want to play the game, but you get, get it because it's free, and you either, which is the case for me, don't ever look at it at all, or you load it once just briefly, have a quick look and go back out. Yeah. So that's that, the, that, that, that going just now. And that all feeds into this perceived value. It was yeah. free. I didn't need to make any effort to get it. So I'm not going to put as much time into it. And then a level above that again is what you touched on is that you've pirated and also a train has been put on it. So you've got unlimited energy. So you're just powering through so you can say you've seen the game and you can go to school the next day and say, oh, yeah, what did you think of level four? Did you see the end of level boss? How did you Please kill him? Me. Oh, I just held down the fire button because I had unlimited energy. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, let's get back on point. Um, Glenn, let's talk about some of your favourite first levels in the article. What do you think about this? Well, I suppose as a self-titled casual retro gamer, um, I mm-hmm. spend most of my time just playing the first level and not particularly good when it comes to comes <laughs> to uh, you know platforming games and whatnot. Uh, from the article itself, though, I don't actually think I've played that many of those games, certainly not when they were relevant, when they were new. I didn't have the the NES or the Mega Drive back in the day. For me, it was the Sega Master System, and I suppose it's inbuilt game, Alex Kidd and Miracle World. I've probably played the first level of that more times than I could count, because every time I fall into the water at the bottom, I wind up getting killed. Yeah, yeah. there's, there's no 8-bit console representation in the list, is there? Um, so no. I think well, we well, could... The other guy is two years old. He had, a, he had a C64 in that era, yeah. Um, but yeah, at least you got Alex Kidd and not Snail Maze built into your Master System. That was a bit more Well, it was a Master System too, I had. There we go, yeah. yeah. Any standout for you on the list? Well, I suppose the one that stands out is Sonic, although for me it would have been mm-hmm. Sonic on the Master System. But much like its Mega Drive version... The game drops you in, first of all, to what I would call a safe screen. You can move back and forward. There's no enemies there. But as you do start to progress into it, you get one simple enemy along with a platform with coins on it. That teaches you that you need to jump. After that, then, the next enemy, well, that fires projectiles, teaching you that you need to be more careful. As a misplaced run and jump, you'll hit the projectile. It maybe doesn't work as well as the first level of Super Mario, though, as the fast-paced environment of Sonic means that once you're used to it, you can more easily just ignore everything and run to the end. Sort of like what you were saying, Neil, with your competition, the speedrunning competition. Although, like any good first level, I suppose the most important thing of it is that it, it teaches you the game without realizing that you're actually being taught. Yeah, that's exactly what Chris touched on earlier. It's the difference between learning through play and learning through great yeah. big prompts appearing on the screen saying, press X, Y, L1, and then a, a, a sort of pre-rendered sequence plays out. <laughs> Dave, you're bouncing yeah, up know. and down. What, what have you got yeah. to share? I, I, quite often I'll, I'll play a modern strategy 
uh, or a kind of real-time strategy type game like that. And the, the tutorial is so on the nose with that that it really puts you off. It really, I mean, it really tells you it's a tutorial. It makes it really obvious, and they don't really get any enjoyment out of it. Um, they have to do it. They have to do it right. You have to be like Len says. You have to do it without realizing you're being taught, or without at least being right in your face that you're being taught. I do think maybe though with some modern games they're so complicated though that maybe it's just not possible to to do that's it true there is more there is the day. yeah definitely more complexity um i was about to say that it's almost a rite of passage to go bankrupt tens of times in some you know strategy games like railroad tycoon as part of the <laughs> learning process you know cheat uh, um well, you know, just just going. Oh, I shouldn't have bought the top of the range train because it's left me with no money for tracks mm. to put it on, and that sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you don't necessarily have to have your hand held to learn those lessons, um, and you certainly remember them more when you do it through mistakes rather than just clicking through reams of text or a, a tutorial. Anyway, um, Chris, have you played any games? <laughs> Any chance you get? <laughs> any chance you get? Um, yes, I've played games, Neil. Um, Games that stand out to me where the first level really sort of drew me in. Um, and some of these might not be as old as some people are hoping. Well, in fact, I'll jump into the one that's the oldest on, on the three that I've picked, and that's Shadow of the Beast. And I know a lot of people call it a tech demo rather than the game. But that first level, is that game even really broken up into levels? Maybe not so much because it kind of just progresses, but we're just in the field. And if you run right, which is what everybody did, rather than running left, which is what you're meant to do, you're just running across the field with the most bizarre things coming at you, including eyeballs and the parallax mm. scrolling. The visuals were amazing. The music is, is you know, music. really atmospheric. And it was just amazing. And it just blew us away, literally did. And even if you never progressed beyond running the wrong way in the field, um, you, you had fun and it was really hard to progress all the way through to the castle only to discover you couldn't actually get in because you'd run the wrong way. Um, so, yeah, that, that's definitely a standout one for me. Um, and then we're into slightly newer. So um, what was it? Towards the end of the 90s, Unreal. So the first-person shooter, Unreal. So not Unreal Tournament. I'm talking about the, the story-led game. Um, and, again, just a really original way to introduce the player to what's going on. You know, you wake up on this crash prison ship, you're, you're scampering through some air ducts and there's something up ahead that's, you know, seems scary, but you can't quite see what it is. There's lights flashing on and off. And if you've just installed a 3DFX Banshee like I had, the visuals were absolutely stunning. And then you eventually get out onto the planet. There's little creatures hopping around. There's a canyon. There's a waterfall. You can see the ripples. You can hear the wind howling through. You look up and you see the clouds moving in front of the the sun. So I think it's not just the way it was introducing the story, but the visuals that it was using were were really sort of cutting edge for the time. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you've chosen two games there in Shadow of the Beast and Unreal, which were... Um you know championed as tech demos as games first and foremost but also held up as tech demos um unreal was certainly there unreal was a great game but you just reminded me talking about games like that in the late 90s uh, 1998 half-life of course the monorail mm. intro um Ooh, with yeah. the voiceover uh you know your first experience of that half-life engine and everything it could do and Sort of, oh, Dave's Dave's not sure about this, but you were kind of on the monorail and you could see all of these amazing things and you were just itching to get out and interact with them, but it it caged you in. Yeah. I was thinking about Skyrim, for example, you're finally awake. That that kind of 
that's true. A, a iconic intro, and it, it's. I'm, I'm trying to think: is that the first level? Is it really the first level, or is that the intro to the game? And it's. I guess that's what. That's mm. the transition is, but this, this article was originally about the first level that you play because that's as far as you get, and maybe, maybe yeah. it's valid to say, well, maybe people only get get a little bit past the intro, and the intro is what they remember. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's a valid point because you can't actually fail the uh the monorail scene on half-life you can't you can't die you can't lose so it's yeah. not really a level is it it's an intro okay i'll take that back anyway back to you yeah. chris yeah i'm still running with my trend even if i know what you're saying you know it's the, the games where you couldn't get necessarily past the first level but yeah just games where the, the the first level drew me into the game this one's a much newer so apologies to those that uh to those that want me to stay more retro but bioshock um another first person shooter and just the fact that it was so original, so different, you know, this whole underwater city, whole steampunk aesthetic being drawn in, you know, the, the sort of fear factor of what's going on as you meet different characters and stuff. But then uh, equally, uh, um, some some people might, might not have bothered playing it, but if you go all the way through the trilogy to Bioshock Infinite, then you uh, hit Chris, with that again. Yes. Go on. I just want to point out that I'm just playing Bioshock Remastered on the Switch and it's my first time playing the game, so please don't spoil it. <laughs> okay, I won't, I won't spoil it. But let me just say that Bioshock... Does that include the whole trilogy, including Bioshock Infinite? Um, I think it does, actually. I'm not. I'm, I'm just playing through the first one, but I think I've okay. also got other games from the series. Oh, the I don't, okay, what can I say without spoiling? Because it is so amazing. Just the level one. Just stick to level one. The level one, and it's just... <laughs> It's equally different. So, you know, you get used to the the world that, that you're in, immersed in in Bioshock and that uh, that feeling of being somewhere completely new that you couldn't even imagine will hit you again when you start Infinite. Let me put it that way. Right, yeah. okay. Yeah, it Bioshock's is quite an incredible game. Go on, Glenn. Bioshock's one of those games that I've always wanted to play and I just never got around to it. I hadn't for years, and it was one of my mates in England. Uh, Yeah, my mate Lee in England, old schoolmate, he said, you have to play Bioshock. So I was years behind the game and then played it on the PS4 was the first version I played. Fantastic. You have to play it, Glenn. It's brilliant. Yeah, no, I did that recently on GOG. I just haven't got around to actually starting it yet. Yeah, really lovely artistic direction with that kind of futuristic but also art deco. Um, It teases you with some of the the big, is it it the big daddy? Yeah. Uh, You see him sort of marching around, but you don't actually get to fight him. You see him sort of, you know, the tubes through the ocean and things like that. Oh, it's it's good. Um, So, yeah. Anyway, get your thinking hats on, listeners, because this is going to be our question of the week. What's your number one first level in gaming history? And we'll talk about this more at the end of the show before we finish today. Uh, You can find a link to the article in the Metro in the show notes, as well as anything else that we discussed today. Do check the notes. And, um, uh, you know, I had a think about some of those games. I mentioned Half-Life 1. Uh, Some games we've talked about teach you uh, how to play the game through level one. Some games you just know level one so well because it's incredibly hard. Uh, So Commando Mm -hmm. on the arcade, for example, or even on my Amstrad CPC. I know that one inside out. Um, Prince of Persia, the first one, is a a nice example of learning the game. But it it can be quite brutal when you fall down on those spikes and then you've got to find your way to, uh, to the sword. Uh, unless you cheat and go a slightly different way around, but you're supposed to go and get the sword. There's lots of examples, so we're looking forward to hearing your um, answers to the question of the week later on in the show. 
We are sponsored, thank you very much, by Pixel Addict Magazine. Pixel Addict Magazine is a monthly magazine that comes out once every six weeks approximately. The new issue is in the shops now. Go and buy it uh, in your local newsagent or order it from their website. The website URL, Glenn, is... Pixel.addict.media. Oh, he's oh, we're supposed to... You didn't to... catch oh, him no. out. He knew. Oh. So it coming. Um, <laughs> I've seen too website. many episodes of this. <laughs> catching me out. You can um, you can order it as a PDF um, through email, obviously, and download it, or you can get it um, from a physical copy in your newsagent, or get it delivered to you wherever you are in the world. It's fantastic. It's nice to get something physically in your hand to read, uh, or to sit down and tune the world out and read it. Um, this this month's cover story, as we mentioned last week, is celebrity gamers, gamers, people who talked about uh, loving playing games. Um, do you do you read it, Glenn? I actually don't, and I'm almost ashamed to say that. It is, it is no something title. that I, that I do need to sort out, though. I, I do need to get myself a subscription to it because it, it, it does not, look like I'm a fantastic to... magazine. I'm I'm trying to split my time so that I, I'm I'm terrible. I'm absolutely terrible for doing just one thing and only one thing because that's what I want to do until I do something else. But I'm trying to stop myself doing that and saying, look, sit down, read a book, listen to an audio book, play a game, read a magazine, watch a watch a film. I'm trying to split my time so I don't just do all of one thing and trying to find a bit of time to read a magazine. I, I do it now, uh, makes a big difference. Um so yeah, go and buy it. It might not seem like it these days, but for a generation of people who grew up with the original Star Wars trilogy, there was a drought. We had magazines, we had expanded universe books, and going back further, there was newsletters like Bantha Tracks, etc. But for 10 years, there was pretty much nothing cinematic for Star Wars. Now you can't move for cartoon series, films, and live-action TV, and it is wonderful, it's great, but from the release of... Return of the Jedi in 1983 until Star Wars X-Wing on the PC in 1993, we had to make do without. Now, X-Wing was a space combat simulator. Think of it as a sort of a flight sim that's very heavy on the arcade and combat side of things, but it was really, really good. It has LucasArts super important iMuse, so that's music that dynamically changed with the events of the game Although it wasn't, it, it it didn't suddenly change. It it wasn't just like music stopped and the new music started. It blended it in. Um, it was great, really important. The I'm used for it. It also had complicated and highly functional sets of objective, and every other ship in space was trying to achieve theirs. So that there was failure and success objectives for you and the other other ships were going after your targets and trying to stop you winning. Um, it was made by Totally Games, and it was kind of the successor to their series of flight sims. So Battlehawks 1942, their finest hours, and then Secret Weapons of the, the Luftwaffe, uh, carrying on and expanding the gameplay elements from those. It was succeeded in 90. It was a, it, it was a tremendous, X-Wing was a tremendous success, and it was succeeded in 1994 by TIE Fighter, where they really enhanced and honed in the gameplay and made it better and tie fighter remains one of my my favorite games maybe even my favorite game if you ask me on the right day tie fighter is fantastic neil just looking at the um the dates that you mentioned there x-wing in 1993 we had to make do without you mentioned there were some other 
Star Wars games that came out in that period. Um, so there was Super Star Wars on the SNES, which kind of condensed the, the trilogy um, down into a, a 2D game. Um, there were Game Boy games. There was, mm. uh, you know, Star Wars. Um, there was an X68000 game, which was, you know, wireframe like the arcade. And then there were the arcade releases. <clears throat> so I, I think I, I totally agree with you. There was a, a drought in Star Wars stuff. But video games was the one place where there was still some things dripping out in that period, whether it was licensed or whether it was games like Death Star Interceptor on the Spectrum, which were clearly Star Wars games, but not, I think mm. you'd agree with me that they don't count. But um, the, the, video games is the one place where it, it, it Star Wars was, it's still inspiring games. Well, kind of yes, but no. It's the cinematic thing I'm talking about. There was nothing cinematic in Star Wars until x-wing came around and x-wing had the cutscenes, and the cutscenes were a really important part of x-wing right. and that's the first time that i sat and i felt as if i was watching star wars kind of the same you. way to the films so you felt so, like there was new content that built upon the star wars universe in a in a cinematic way yeah, yeah. yeah there was there was okay. nothing cinematic for those 10 years until we got the the cut scenes in in X-Wing and that's the link to where I'm going with this story because the cut scenes are the kind of common theme. So we had Tie Fighter, Tie Fighter was fantastic. It richly expanded the Star Wars universe giving real context to what the empire was doing. It didn't make the empire look as bad as the films did. Um and then the franchise went in a bit of a different direction in 1995 with Dark Forces. So following on from Doom's creation of a whole new super popular genre of games, it used the Jedi engine, which is very similar to the 3D Realms build engine. Uh, and the game, you saw it in 3D. It's not, you can argue it's not really 3D because it was sprites and so on, but you saw it in 3D, you were shooting at stormtroopers and exploring maps with much more of a puzzle focus than Doom or Duke had, and in many ways better than either of those. I don't know if it was better overall, but in some ways it was better than those because it was a bit deeper. Um, lots of people get stuck in the Stormtrooper poo level, Neil. Well, when you, when you have the benefit of a familiar backstory, it's immediately a deeper game. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. You're, you're already coming into it with a preconceived idea and um, knowledge of the, the lore around the game. So, yeah, it really helps. Yeah, um, the heavy, the really solid Star Wars vibe really helped. It was a popular game, but one I think has been kind of forgotten until recently when all of a sudden two new things have happened. So first of all, let's ask Glenn, what's your history with Star Wars and games? You're the right age to be a Star Wars fan. Did you play many of the games? Well, definitely a Star Wars fan, but I don't think I really played any Star Wars games until we got our PC. That would have been 1996, I think. So the game in question that we're talking about here, it, it sort of passed me by, to be honest. Although saying that, I did go back and play the X-Wing and TIE Fighter games. I do clearly remember playing those. But Dark Forces itself, I don't really remember. Maybe that goes with what I said about the, the, the Dark Forces not being really that popular. Um, yeah. I've been popular, so, but not that, not that well remembered. I mean, one, one Star Wars game I do remember clearly is Rebel Assault 2. I remember actually going into Belfast and buying that. But um, I suppose it is more just like an FMV type type game, like an on-rails shooter type game, but it was a great game. I have real fond memories of playing that. It wouldn't have worked without the Star Wars universe. I don't, without without, without no, I don't feeling so. like it was Star Wars, you just I don't it, think so. it, it really I mean, needs it. 
Yeah, I've played plenty of those type of games on other platforms, you know, and they're just not that interesting. I suppose it, it is the Star Wars theme that holds your interest there, and just the you know the style of it, the music, everything. You know, just it just sucks you in. Did you ever play Dark Forces at all? I, well, I played it yesterday. <laughs> I, went, I went and bought a copy of it nice. in anticipation of this. Although um, I'm now currently stuck on the third level, I think it is the sewer level. I have no idea where I'm going whatsoever. If you get stuck, ask Reese, and he will give you some empathy because he's also stuck there. He right. did it. He live streamed that, and he couldn't. He couldn't get past that level. It's difficult. It's difficult. You need to be. You need it to is do difficult. A thing in a certain place. It's, it's finding your way through it. And maybe that's one thing that the re, uh, the remaster will fix. One thing that I found playing the game yesterday was that a lot of the maps are very tall, and it can be quite hard to see what's going on, especially when your field of view is fixed. You know, you can't look up and down. The thing is, the thing about the, the tallness, the height of the game, is that that was a huge attraction at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, no, actually, Doom didn't have particularly game. high levels. Then Duke Nukem, that had some quite nice sort of skyscrapers. And then Dark Forces was just on another level again. You, you could look up, yeah. you could look down into a chasm and just be like, whoa, that's that's incredible. We hadn't seen things like that before in those yeah. types of games. So well, it's, a, it's an important I, feature you mentioned. Although I assume the remaster will give you full mouse look you'll be able to look up and down all, all around yourself so it would probably be easier to you know navigate the, the levels then mm-hmm. i did notice actually that there's been an amiga release of this game as well in recent times although i hear it needs a very beefy amiga to run at any acceptable frame rate something like a maybe 100 megahertz 060 although i wonder does it run on pi storm I haven't tried it yet. Mm. It's funny you mentioned Amiga. I was going to come on to that. I will come on in just a minute. Um, but my story was submitted by Solipsium. Uh, thank you, Solipsium. And it's that a remaster of Dark Forces has been announced. So Dark Forces, here's my my copy and my guide for it. Um, I'll sell you. I'll sell you pictures of the guide for level three if you like. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Night Dive Studios, who did the Quake 2 and System Shock remasters, are using the same engine to give um, Dark Forces a modern touch. It's coming to Steam, Switch, Xbox, PlayStation later this year. Um, The stuff I'm sure everyone will welcome is better support for controllers, achievements, 4K, 120 frames per second. But they've also, and I'm sure they'll do something with the, the, the playability, I hope they do something with some of the levels where you get so stuck it's frustrating. I don't think that's good. I like that there's more to it than the, the, more more involved, but I think it maybe goes a wee bit far, so maybe it'll help there. But something controversial, I think, is they've touched up the cutscenes. Now, the cutscenes are, the for me, the cutscenes are, are really good. Uh, they're done with kind of pixel art, and um, they've touched them up, and they can, in my never humble opinion get that right to um they should have a they should have a careful think about what they're doing if and decide if that's what they really want they look they look kind of cartoony they don't they don't look they they haven't improved them um i hope there's at least the option to put the original cutscenes on screen rather than those um but I mentioned Dark Forces coming to the Amiga. It's just recently come to the Amiga. Porto has been done. Although, as Glenn mentioned, to, to use it comfortably, you want to be using an 060. And an 060 is a, is a significant upgrade from the 68,000 that a stock Amiga would have 
or an 020 that you would get in an Amiga 1200. Uh, it's not cheap either. Um, it's not cheap. Um, but I saw one. I happened to be in someone's house last week when I was swapping over bits from a Checkmate build, and he has an 060, and he showed me um, he showed me uh, it running, Dark Forces running on his Amiga, and it looked fantastic it was really smooth he was getting something like 30 frames a second and that was fine for it it sounded great the midi setup as well it sounded fantastic it looked great it's a great way of playing it um and i'm told that the, the same guy uh bs zilly has done wolfenstein um 3d and speed of destiny and power slave he's brought all those across the amiga you will need though eight megabytes of fast RAM or twelve megabytes of fast RAM if you want the wonderful MIDI music and AGA or RTG graphics. Now, Irish and ornery or nunnery, uh, Scott <laughs> Rob Cranley. When the uh, captions I, were I, I done, I should probably explain that. Yes, yeah. When <laughs> Rob Cranley appeared on my Kickstart video, um, he has a. Uh, a, a, a strong Irish accent, uh, and he was an honorary member of the Scottish Amiga user group. But YouTube captions uh, captioned that particular segment of the video with, of him saying, Hi, my name's Rob. I'm Irish and I'm a nunnery. <laughs> um, he's made key customizations for the Amiga to make it easier to get to grips with. And and I'm actually hoping that Andrew gets me some footage for Duncan to show you of the Amiga version. Um, now, Neil, what Star Wars games are for you? And do you fancy Dark Forces, the remaster or the Amiga version? Mm. So um, we're in a genre of games now, which I believe the kids call boomer shooters. So we're in the boomer shooter territory. <laughs> um I think first-person shooter games like this hold up very well when they're remastered. Uh, it's it's that era of 3D or, like you said, pseudo 3D uh, games combined with sprite-based enemies. And that works well when you remaster them because you get the retro feel of a game that you can enjoy with um, nice up, you know, upscaled-looking sprites rather than super low polygon enemies that you just go, oh, well, they've aliased that better, but... He's got an incredibly low Crazy. polygon count on his head. It's just, it's just weird looking. Um, so um, yeah, and, and these kind of games also lend themselves well to voxels. I don't know if you've seen Voxel Doom or recently Voxel Doom Two came out. So sprites translate really well into voxels to make them truly three D, rather than that kind of flick book uh, sprite effect mm. when you move around the enemies. Um, there's reasons for it for, for it being like that at the time. It worked well. Um, and even in the modern day, it gives a retro feel. I don't mind that at all. Um, but yeah, in terms of Star Wars games, um, Star Wars Arcade. Now, I was a little bit young for when Star Wars Arcade came out. So in the 80s, when I saw it, I looked at it as being a bit of a dated arcade game. But now I really appreciate it, you know, with the vector screen. Because you were looking it's at timeless. it going, oh, it's a wireframe. It's, um, yeah, it's timeless, but it's not timeless in 1988. Mm. When I you're looking you. at 1988 games and you're deciding yeah. what to put your 20p or your 10p into. Um, yeah. So I, I appreciate that more in the modern day. Glenn re mentioned Rebel Assault 2. I mean, Rebel Assault, um, the first one as well, was a big deal in just... It was one of those games that you got to to show off the fact that you had a CD-ROM drive, the first one. Um, if it didn't come bundled with your drive, you'd, you'd get hold of it in, in a compilation or something like that. Um, X-Wing and TIE Fighter played that to death. Being a Flight Sim fan, it was just perfect. I loved it. 
And Dark Forces, I did play through to completion at the time. Really, really loved Dark Forces. But uh, not so much Dark Forces 2. I think that came out around 97. Um, and it just, it didn't capture me in the same way. It felt kind of a little bit lightweight. Um, or maybe I just got my fill in the first game. But it, it, it was slightly different in that it had like a third person view that you could go to because Tomb Raider had come out. So that was influencing the direction of games. Um, yeah. Did you play that much, Dave? I, I've played it, not much, but I've played it. And lots of people seem to talk about it as if it's the better game. But I hmm. think it's because you have a lightsaber in it. And everybody wants to jump about with a lightsaber hmm. and feel like a proper Jedi. And there's no, you don't get a lightsaber in, in um, Dark Forces. And yeah, again, well, I think people are a little bit disappointed with that. Reviewers certainly enjoyed it at the time. It's not that Dark Forces hmm. 2 was a bad game. Um, my mind wandered a little bit when you were talking about first level games again, <laughs> and you were talking about <laughs> lightsabers there and weapons. I was just thinking about a game called Bioforge. I don't know if you've ever played that, but on level one of Bioforge, you had to escape from your little prison cell. And then you saw another prisoner whose arm had got cut off by a laser and was on the floor outside the prison cell. So to learn the art of combat in the game, you picked up his severed limb, armed it as a weapon and then beat him to death with it. <laughs> now, that's a level one. <laughs> anyway, back to Star Wars, Dave. Chris, this has got to be right up your street. In fact, Neil, you didn't answer. You didn't answer the question. Will Sorry, you what play was the this question, again? Will, will you play it again? Will you play the remaster? Or do you fancy playing it on the Amiga? Yes. Um, I really enjoyed the um, Portal RTX remaster. Played through that. Uh, I'm I'm gonna play the Quake Two remaster next. Um, that came out recently, and then definitely Dark Forces as well. Yeah, Fair I'm enough. gonna give it a go. So, Chris, this is right up your street. Do you have a fast enough Amiga, or are you gonna play it in PC? <laughs> yeah, PC. Um, I was literally just looking up the price again of the uh, Terrible Fire. 060 cards i'd love one i'd absolutely <laughs> love one but i'd be in so much trouble i really would um i need a divorce lawyer i think so it's not the price of the card that's the problem it's oh. the price of the 060 yeah and you need the one with the fpu you don't remember for this game in particular oh do you really yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, i mean i've looked at them because of other games as well like um Alien Breed 3D2 really would need one. An O3O's clearly. Let's, let's, yeah, not enough about the Amiga. Dark Forces. I absolutely love Star Wars, um, including the, the expanded universe. So, I mean, I was into reading the books, the comics, everything. I've still got some of my original toys in the background and stuff like that. Star Wars nut and said it over and over again. I also love first person shooters, my favorite genre of games. So, you'd think this would be right up my alley. But I did play it, but hardly at all. I would I would actually put this on the list of games that Chris hasn't played because even though I did play it, I didn't put many hours into it at all. And I think I think the issue with this was maybe I went in with too high expectations. You know, it's a first person shooter and it's Star Wars. Oh my goodness, mm. this is going to be awesome. And some of it was. I mean, you did feel like you're immersed in the Star Wars universe. The textures were were spot on in terms of that sort of Empire aesthetic mm-hmm. in the buildings you're running around in. The sound effects were brilliant. You know, yeah. you felt like you were firing the guns that you'd heard in the movie. But once you got over that, I kind I didn't feel there was the depth of gameplay that I was experiencing in like Doom, Doom Two, and then later Duke Nukem 3D. Um, for me, 
very personal thing. So the, the whole Star Wars, um, you know, storyline wasn't enough to draw me in. I, I needed something more out of the gameplay. Uh, and that's kind of followed on because I can't really think of a single Star Wars first-person shooter that I've enjoyed other than for a little while Battlefront on Star Wars Battlefront on the PS2, as in the original version, um, simply because that was awesome. It was a massive battlefield and you could get on speeder bikes and all sorts of different things. And, you know, you could, it was split screen as well. You could battle your mates. Um, but one, again, one, again, once you got over that initial, oh, this is awesome, it's Star Wars and all the stuff's there and it's a massive playing area, it kind of waned. Um, and then anything later, like obviously the the very latest iterations of Battlefront, they were just terrible. I mean, they were just, um, they were a storefront. Um, you know, you, you bought the game, but you got hardly anything on the disc and you needed to pay for the download content, especially the first version was absolutely terrible for that. I think they improved it on the second one, but by then I'd lost the faith. Um, and again, great for multiplayer, but there was no storyline. There was no single player. Um, mm. So, mm. which again, you get out of things like Doom and Quake and that kind of thing. Neil? I will say that um, timing is everything. So Dark Forces held my interest because I did think it was a good game and I got into it. Um, the second one, not so much. But then games like Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace came out. And um, it's not it's not a great game, but I played it an awful lot because of the timing of the movie's release. So I was yeah. kind of caught up in the mm. buzz of the movie and I'm going to play the game and this is great. Same with was it pod racer yeah that was um one. yeah pod that racer one as well game. so because the movie had just come out and there was a buzz about it i gave these games probably more time than they really deserved mm. Mm. that's, that's, that's the true. whole point of star wars games is the whole point of star wars games is that the universe kind of gets you more involved in it yeah that's true as for playing this remaster, I mean, I could, because I didn't put much time into the original, I could happily play this without feeling like I'm going over old ground, so there is that. Mm -hmm. But, of course, now I've got some old PCs up my sleeve, so I could just play the original. So, yeah. But I, I like the fact that they do it. It makes it more accessible for others, yeah. I'm hoping to do kind of both. I'm hoping to do a bit of both. I'm hoping to try and get the remaster working on one of my older PCs. I've got a Windows 7 PC that's reasonably powerful, but it's connected up to the CRT. So I, I hope I can get that Windows 7 PC to play the remaster of Dark Forces on the CRT and get maybe the best of both worlds. I don't know. Um, I hope they get to the, the, the sequel, Dark Forces 2 Jedi Knight. Kind of became the series after that because you then had Jedi Knight 2 rather than Dark Forces 3, so it kind of took over. Um, I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure that this is successful. I'm sure it will be. They'll get to Jedi Knight and we'll get to see a lightsaber. I really hope, though, the videos of the gameplay I've seen, haven't they haven't changed. It doesn't look different. It looks pretty much the same, but I hope they've smoothed the, the sharp edges to make it more accessible, to make it a bit more fun to play where it gets difficult. Um, but they've, they've got iMuse in it. It works at 4K. Um, it sounds and it looks good. There's also a fan remake of it as well called the Force Engine, which aims to do much of the same things. It has iMuse, it works at 4K, it looks and sounds good. It's also planned to work with Outlaws. Now, I don't know, maybe, maybe it already does work with Outlaws, but Outlaws was another game that LucasArts came out with. It's a cowboy shooter that no one seems mm -hmm. to know about. I've never oh, played it. Oh, I remember it. Yeah, yeah. Did you play it? Was any good? It, it, it was no Redneck Rampage, but um, <laughs> it, it was all right. It was nicely stylized. 
so that is is planned for or works in the Force Engine thing, and they've actually the, the guy behind um, the Force Engine has been working with Night Dive to help them get the Dark Forces remaster working well. So it sounds like there's some friendly cooperation there rather than anything um, acrimonious. Um, so that he's given some code to them to help them. And TFE, that's the Force Engine, says it's not affected by the new remaster. So it's been a long time since I mentioned it on the podcast, but there are other Star Wars games that have got fan engine remakes. There's a total conversion for for TIE Fighter, which I haven't looked at yet. I'm waiting until it feels as if it's complete before I do that. There's the X-Wing Alliance upgrade for 220. Um, there is X-Wing versus TIE Fighter. That's been done as well. So I've put links in the show notes to all of those, and they're all worth a look. They all look fantastic. I've been holding off until they get to a point where they kind of like they feel as if they're feature complete to properly experience those. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to those. So long as they sort out the control method for them. The one thing I found yesterday playing the game is the control. Yeah. It's, it's, just, it's almost impossible at times to move. You know, mm. right hand mouse button to move forward, comma, and full stop to strafe. It's very complicated. <laughs> mm. Reese, when he played it, used some kind of mod on those. But I'm I'm certain that's one of the key things they'll change, and I hope that's yeah. the kind of things they look at changing rather than changing how it looks on the screen so much. Mm. They change the yeah. controls and make it a better, enjoyable experience rather than because if you think back to 1995 when this came out, things on first-person shooters weren't crystallized. Things that things mm. that gameplay elements that are now essential. Uh, for the games that you wouldn't you wouldn't go against them they yeah. weren't crystallized in 1995 Not so there's things much. that happen in this game that they w- you wouldn't do now so that i'm sure they'll fix those to make the remaster a bit better yeah, yeah. what would be pretty cool that remember like the monkey island remasters that they did a while back and you could press a press a button to switch between yeah. modern graphics and, and classic graphics yeah hmm. yeah atari are releasing a thing again and unless you've been under a rock this past couple of weeks, I'm sure you're, uh, if you're in the retro scene, your feeds would have been fed to the point of being full with the news of Atari's latest masterpiece. It's, what is it? It's, <laughs> it's an Atari noise. It's, it's <laughs> oh, yeah, they all know. Of course, there's no point covering this story. Everybody's already read this. I've literally just said you probably already know. So move on. Question of the week. No, it's an Atari 2600. Of course it is. Um, Atari seems to have upped their game of late, in my opinion anyway, and kind of understand what the avid real collector actually wants. We don't want an overpriced, underpowered, retro-styled AMD laptop in a VCS-inspired case. For example, um, we do want nice, well-produced collection of reissued original cartridges with light-up logos on the top. That's the kind of thing we do like. Um, and it's things like that, that that show that someone, at least, at Atari is beginning to understand where the money is, and it's in giving fans what they actually want and doing a good job while you're at it. God, who'd and have the, thought of that? It's, I know. It's a marketing amazing. genius. People will actually pay for this stuff. Um, and that, I feel, is what brings us to the latest announcement, to be honest. Um, as shared with us on the subreddit by Alex McCheezers and Hacker319, uh, the Atari 2600 Plus is a recreation of the four-switch 2600 Woody, and it's 80% of the original size. So it's not full-size, but it's not a mini. And it plays wait for it, original 2600 and 7800 
cartridges. Um, technical stuff inside it has a rock chip 3128 SOC microprocessor with 256 meg of DDR3 RAM and 256 meg of eMMC fixed internal storage. Not a not a heap. Um, it comes as standard with one Recreation CX40 joystick and a single cartridge that has 10 games, including Adventure, Combat, Dodgem, Haunted House, Maze, Craze, Missile Command, Real Sports, Volleyball Surround, uh, Video Pinball, sorry, Volleyball Surround, Video Pinball, and Yars Revenge. So what I'm not seeing here is, is there's no ROMs preloaded on the device itself like you get with a flashback and no hint of storage that would allow you to do that either. Um, the joystick ports are fully backward compatible, so they've kept with the the, the nine pin D sockets, um, and they're compatible with the original CX30 paddle controllers as well. In fact, they are releasing both the CX30 and the CX40s as standalone products, um, and video out is of course via HDMI, so it's modern TV friendly. It's not all rosy, though. Atari have openly released a, compatib- a compatibility list, which details about five games that are known to not work and quite a few that are listed as untested. Um, so there is that to consider. Um, so it's 80% size. It's a four-switch woody um, replica that plugs directly into your modern TV and lets you play most of your original 2600 and 7800 cartridge collection. It looks to drop in November, uh, but pre-orders are already open, available from Atari in the US, as well as retailers around the world, and it's priced at $129 US. Thoughts, Dave? All positive. Um, It's in my basket on Amazon UK. It's £100 in Amazon UK, which given the US price, I'm astonished at. I I thought it would be much more than that. Usually $129 in the US is £130 in the UK, but no, $100. if you add the uh, paddle pack, which is a, a cartridge with two paddles, a player two joystick, and the two new enhanced games that are coming out with the new game and an enhanced version of Berserk, if you add those, it comes up to £200. So that's sitting in my basket there. I've never owned or bought any 2600 stuff. Um, I've always been a bit tempted by it. And you've kind of talked me into it, Chris, when you talked <laughs> about how good the flashbacks are. And my, my thinking is here, the emulation on this is going to be spot on. The emulation is going to be bang on. You're not going to you're not going to feel that you're losing out by having it, by having the not having the real thing, Neil. Well, it's not though, is it? Because it says at least five games are not compatible with it. Ah, they'll fix those. If this sells enough, I'm sure they'll, they'll fix the firmware. Especially, Maybe. they're going to want they're going to want you to buy more cartridges. So what they're doing here is unlike the other minis, where once you've got it, they've got your money and they're not interested in you. Unlike the other minis, they want to sell you more cartridges. So they, they'll want to keep this updated. I'm sure. I'm sure they'll fix it for those cartridges. Oh, um, is there an element of Atari love creeping into your opinion here? You're absolutely. being very forgiving. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I'm not going to pretend, but. I, I think this it looks great. It looks absolutely fantastic. I'm not bothered about it being eighty percent. All the rest of it looks great. I have a Mister, and I've got a Mister connected to a nice Trinitron CRT. I've got good controllers on it. I don't need this, but it looks so good. Um, and FOMO will make me hit the button. I'm sure. I'm sure fear of missing out will make me hit the button to buy it. I think it's going to sell shed loads. I think this is going to be incredibly popular. I think it's going to get hacked open. I think there'll be more things done with it than what we're seeing here and i hope 
that they're planning to release loads of carts. I think I'm happy to buy them all. And if they're still selling to carts to people, again, that's the incentive for them to keep working on the firmware, etc. If they've got an income stream from it, there's an incentive for them to work on the firmware, etc. So chuck your Commodore Minis in the bin. It's time for an Atari Mini. That's my thoughts. <laughs> Good point on use of... shower, Dave. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Look, I'm coming at this from an Amiga fan point of view. I'm not an Atari fan as such, but uh, yeah, 2600, I'm all over it. Um, but you raise a good point about you know CRT uses like you can with the Mister, and it's a shame that this thing doesn't simply have a composite out as well as the HDMI out because that would keep the current happy. You can you, know? you can it, going HDMI to RGB is actually fairly easy. Oh, is it okay? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've not can, tried it because go, I like flat you could, panels. <laughs> you can go from HDMI to RGB without adding lag, so that, that's not so bad. Okay, okay, that's good to know. Um, yeah, Glenn, what do you think? So Atari is releasing a new 2600 that can play 7800 games. Are they actually just releasing a new 7800 then, since it could play Atari 2600 <laughs> games anyway? True. Yeah. Yes, but a yeah. good-looking Easy, one. Easier to market. Yeah, easier to <laughs> yes, market. I suppose it is easier to market. 2600 is more, is, is more well-known. But one thing I was wondering, though, if I'm correct... The 7800 itself, there was some 2600 games it could not play. Ah. Are they maybe just emulating a 7800? And the incompatibility is in there Ah. just solely because of that. That's a good point. Mm. Clever. And I suppose the other thing is, why no love for the 5200? Now, I know it uses a different well, cartridge, so you would need some sort of converter to be able mm. to plug it in, but they are marketing mm. this very much as a 2600 and the 7800, but what about the one that came in I if it could be clever enough to have a cartridge port that would accept both kind of cartridges. Mm. I don't know. I'm not know. sure if the original hardware was compatible like that, but surely from an emulation point of mm. view, it wouldn't be, yeah. it wouldn't be too uh, difficult to do. That's true. But the, yeah. but the other thing, and I suppose I, it maybe comes across, I don't hold much nostalgia for for, for that system. It's just too far before my time. Hmm. But I'm wondering, ultimately, who is this for? Now, I, I know Chris and, and Dave, <laughs> you guys are all Me. on board here, but from from my point of view, I, I own two 2600s. You know, I've got a six-switcher and a junior. If I want to hmm. play 2600 games, I'll just use one of those. Yeah, and and it, surely it, any of the who, hardcore Atari fans will have their original hardware. So it's, it's for casual people, for casual retro retro gamers. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, who... I know that. But then, why can't you just run games off an SD card? Yeah, you know, it, no, it, you it, raise it a good point, there, Glenn. It just yeah, something sit, good sit about right it. Well, look at look look at that, that. What's that hand key? Is it the Evercade I'm talking about? Is, is that Evercade the one that has the cartridges? And they do yes. really well with selling selling yes, yeah. compilations yeah. like a Codemasters one or, or something. I, I guess that they're they're going for the same kind of vibe there. I like the I love the idea of sticking a cartridge in. I love the idea of that. Yeah. I, I, I think mean, I know uh, where Glenn's uh, coming from here though. Like if because if yeah. it, if, oh, if yeah. you could load ROMs as well, or if it came preloaded with some ROMs, then yeah. you keep both markets happy. You you keep the plug and play casual retro gamers happy um that literally you know don't want to they, they haven't collected they don't want to collect also that they're, they're not fussed with emulation but sell them a box that will just work out of the box and they're happy but also then the the hardcore collectors can go and buy their cartridges and plug them in yeah if 
if if this if, if this does go in the market it will and it sells lots of them there's no reason at all why it can't have a multi-cart I mean, there's nothing that mm. there's nothing stopping this having a multi-cart so someone will make a multi-cart for these because there's now this sudden massive big market for it and with a multi-cart you can put on whatever you want so i'm sure there'll be an aftermarket one maybe even atari will make their own yeah mm. i mean looking at it from the hardware point of view i think it'll be interesting to discover how the original cartridge interfaces with with the modern hardware um, mm. will there be an option there to be able to hack in to it via that cartridge port to be able to run different software you know yeah because you could, could put, ultimately you could have... be hacked to emulate other systems or yeah. could it could it be hacked to run i don't know could someone make a, a newer atari 2600 game that could maybe make more use of the potential capabilities of the hardware yeah. within this there's a very simple question that will answer that will it run doom and someone will answer that question Ooh, very quickly. <laughs> someone will. Someone will. Um, I mean, the cynic in us is saying that they're locking this down to cartridges so that you've got to buy their aftermarket cartridges. But uh, if you flip that round the other way, that could result in more new games that you can use on original hardware if it's all nice and compatible. So it's not such a bad Remember, thing. That could be quite nice. It, it, it works with original cartridges. So you can exactly, you go yeah. to you go to a flea market and you pick up a bundle of Atari Twenty Six Hundred cartridges. All you need to do is clean up the contacts and you can use them. And they're yeah. not expensive. I've said it over and over again. They're not expensive. Sorry, deal. Yeah. So, well, so I'm not expecting this to be so successful that it invigorates a whole new, um, you know, you know, software industry for the 2600. But what is produced for it is um, <laughs> is is compatible with the original system, so we can enjoy that. Um, on the size issue, 80 percent of the size. Why? Why not just go 100 percent? Because the result is now that cartridge look cartridges look 20 percent bigger when they're in the system so you you kind of you you lose those proportions it doesn't look quite right um i don't know there's probably something to do with shipping making sure the box is small enough to keep the shipping down or something like that in why it's 80 percent of the size um hardcore collectors and casual gamers will buy it alike simply because it's an official atari product so those real hardcore atari collectors will buy that it looks like dave's anticipated delivery has just arrived the doorbell's gone he's run off um that's his amiga 1200 board so he'll be back in a minute um and then you touched on chris you said nobody wants a underpowered pc in a nice looking atari case which is what we had before I would love for this case to have mounting points for a mini ITX board. Um, I'm more interested in the look and the case of this thing than its functionality because ultimately it's a system on a chip. It's an Mm. Atari 2600 joystick that you could pick up for £10 with games built in for the last 20 years. (laughs) You know, it's just going to achieve the same result. Uh, But it's the case and the official Atari name that seems nice to me, Chris. I'll justify my comment at the opening there. I mean, obviously, it was just to get a response. Um, but but also, it, I think I left out the word overpriced, potentially, because it was. Originally, it was overpriced, the Atari VCS. I clicked sure. on I clicked on Buy It Now several times and just couldn't pull the trigger. I thought it was a gorgeous-looking thing, but the mm. specs inside it and, and the, the main usage case, I just couldn't justify it, even when they dropped and dropped in price. Yeah, it was just yeah. too expensive for what it was. And then looking at the bigger picture, I'm just starting to wonder if this is the age that we're coming into of full size or 80% size modern system remakes. We've had the minis 
is are, there, are we now going to start to see larger remakes of systems churned out now that we've seen there's an appetite for the minis there's been talk about the amiga 500 mini becoming an amiga full-size replica you had the c64 the c64 full-size replica dave is this at 80 percent much different in size than the minis is is, is it is this is it, I think of it. I think of this as a mini. I think this is as small as they could make it while still mm. having taking a cartridge. Well, no, no it is Atari, that, is it? so I would describe it as a MIDI. I would. Oh, that would be sensible. Clever. That was very funny, but I'm going to ruin it. Um, it's a. It would be. I would imagine the same size as an Atari Twenty Six Hundred Junior. It would be roughly that size, okay. which is absolutely yeah. fine. So it's a full size yeah. system, as far as I'm concerned, with the nicer aesthetic yeah. of the of the Woody. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. went all yeah. serious then. Yeah. You'd think I'll wait for Atari yeah. or something now, I'm just defending this thing <laughs> to the death. There um, will be comments, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, there will be. Angry yeah. Amiga fans. Yeah. I'm happy like saying anything good about it. <laughs> Do please leave a comment if you've got anything to say about the aesthetics of Chris's Woody. It's a six switcher. It's a it's a full size six switcher. It's a full on Woody. Anyway, if you think um, Atari games are too basic and shallow, um, you'd be right, of course. Uh, but there are some real gems actually, and the algorithms, because I showed interest in this, they blessed me with a link to an article on TimeExtension.com listing the best twenty six hundred and seventy eight hundred games to play on your new Atari twenty six hundred plus. So that's worth a read. They also blessed me with an article on T3 by Rick Henderson, who isn't speculating about the 2600 Plus. He's actually played on one. And in his opening, he describes how it instantly took him back to his childhood, labeling the device as, in his words, not a console, it's a time machine. So I'll drop those link locs. I'll drop those links in the notes as well um and the news just keeps on exploding actually my mind was blown oh sorry go on neil oh just on the time machine comment you know it's so easy for us to forget that there are people out there who haven't touched these machines since they were out first time around you know we're all within this community we're all surrounded by this stuff and you forget just how powerful it is to see a, a console running that you haven't seen running for 35 years for the first time you know, that sounds like exactly that reaction. And that's exactly the market this is aimed at. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the point I'm leading into next, actually, because my mind's been blown. And you, oh, I'm in the scene now. Um, but it, it uh, my mind was literally blown when I realized that soon, in 2023, you'll be able to walk into a major retail chain, such as EB Games, for example, because I know they've got pre-orders open, and buy an Atari 2600 Woody with 10 games on one card. You'll literally be able to walk into a shop get a brand new one boxed, um, and that's amazing. You'll be able to buy new joysticks, new paddles, and they come with a, a four-game cartridge that includes Night Driver, Breakout, Canon, uh, Canyon Bomber, and Video Olympics. And Video Olympics itself, it itself contains several games, including Pong. Um, you'll be able to buy a new enhanced ver uh, edition of Berserk. And lastly, uh, this is amazing. Oh, yeah, Berserk's got speech in it. Um, but last digitized speech, obviously 2600 level. Um, but you'll be able to buy a brand new 2600 game, which is Mr. Run and Jump, in a shop in 2023. You'll be able to go and buy a brand new release for an Atari 2600. That's that's absolutely stunning. So I think, you know, touching on what you were saying then, Neil, for somebody that isn't in the scene to walk into one of these shops and see that on the shelf, that's going to be amazing. 
I will be broken hearted. I'll be I'll be shattered if it turns out that the new game doesn't work on a real twenty six hundred. That would be that 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 would ruin it for me. I think. Well, that came out before they announced this. That's been out for a while, so I think oh, we're safe. Fantastic. Good. I think good. we're safe with good. that. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. are with that one. Oh, I was just going to say, and people say Atari lost the console wars at the Jaguar, but here you go, <laughs> Atari, Atari branded official hardware. Where's the Sega hardware? not out there so you oh, know sorry back in the game that's true <laughs> yeah sega could do it they could do it they so oh, could. they would they would smash it if sega went if sega said here is a brand new mega drive like for like fully compatible one-to-one scale Ooh. it would fly off the shelves that's true yeah well speaking of what's going to fly off the shelf for me i mean i've got a flashback nine sideloaded with the thousand roms of a, as i've mentioned before i've got a six inch switcher woody i've got a vader i've got a box junior so this this clearly isn't aimed at me this product um i've no need at all for the atari 2600 and you know we've mentioned it over and over again how cheap i am and i don't jump on these kind of projects not at all which is why I have ordered, pre-ordered the 2600 Plus within yeah. 10 minutes of learning about it, and I actually can't wait, and I actually can't explain how excited I am. I won't say what I said on the run-in to the show. We hadn't press record at that point, I don't think. If we had, then maybe it will make it in. I basically compared it to another system and said I was more excited about this than that, which will shock a few of you, but anyway. Um, for me, it was actually the Atari... 7800 compatibility that was a tipping point even though there's not that many games to collect it's a system i'm interested in haven't managed to pick one up so that kind of ticks that box for me um and you know i never owned a brand new atari it's the system i wanted it's the system i asked for as a kid and that if you went to somebody's house and they had a games console they didn't have a console they had an atari and that's what you got to Mm. play in that's what you sat on the floor and played in the shops while your parents were negotiating for a new washing machine and now i can actually get a brand new one and that that's going to be amazing um and also this is all dave's fault because we're chatting about it on discord this morning um and he pointed out the the fact that you could also get the paddles and these other two cartridges so I've kind of pre-ordered those as well. <laughs> so I'm going to yeah. be in serious trouble when I have to pay the final bill. But anyway, um, I just hope someone does manage to hack it, you know, so that we can sideload ROMs and I can ditch the flashback in the bin because I, w- I won't need it. Um, or actually, like you touched on, Dave, maybe they already have because uh, multi-carts that you can use SD cards actually do already exist for the Atari 2600. So, so long as they haven't found a way of locking those out, the hack's kind of already been done, so that's nice. Time now for last week's community question of the week. So this was set by Reese, who said, which game was most enhanced by playing on the big telly in the living room as opposed to wherever your machine was normally tucked away? The answers to this question come to our subreddit, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro, where each week you can take part in the question of the week. And you can also submit news stories for us to consider for the show. So um, I really enjoyed listening to last week's show. I particularly enjoyed this question. I think we need the second most popular answer to be read out by Glenn. So I'll start with the top answer, which comes from Richard Shears. He says, many come to mind, but I'm going to go with the first one that jumped into my consciousness. Closing the curtains, dimming the lights, plugging the Jaguar into the 28-inch Toshiba with built-in Dolby surround, getting the cartridge out of the rather tattered, well-loved but extremely flimsy box, and inserting, followed by carefully inserting the key overlay over the telephone-like keypad, (laughs) finally selecting Marine and getting fully immersed into a long session of Alien vs. Predator. 
the answer the, the other answer that closely followed is gonna uh, is, is going around to my friend's house after school setting up his specky with the big screen inserting the Kempton Kempston interface and starting loading ritual uh, oh, I think that might be starting the loading ritual uh, nipping mm. into his kitchen and getting some cheese on toast under the grill a can of cherry cola and returning to the living room to play target renegade there's the game the loading Ooh. ritual of lo- loading up target renegade uh and now i've over embellished my answer i'll shut up he says yeah um <laughs> a, a cherry coke uh, i recently added to the cave and it's very popular and now i've got completely addicted to drinking cherry coke while playing retro it's it's a good <laughs> retro drink <laughs> Um, so yeah, uh, Richard with the Atari Jaguar, 28 inch Toshiba. That was a big telly. That was a big CRT for the time. Um, our second most popular answer comes from a gentleman called CRG dash YT. Glenn, would you like to read your answer out? (laughs) (laughs) So yes, I said that for me, the best games to play on the big TV are racing games. Whether it was dragging my Amiga 1200 into the living room and playing Microprose Grand Prix on the 21-inch CRT, yes, that was a big TV, or playing mm-hmm. OutRun 2 on the original Xbox on our 32-inch CRT, which was also a big TV at the time, or even playing MotorStorm on the PS3, that's more modern though, but again on the 42-inch plasma screen, there's something to be said for sitting on the sofa, joypad in hand, selecting first-person view, turning the stereo up to 11, and just taking in the speed. Absolutely, yeah. and you're bang on there. 21-inch was the standard mm. big yeah. telly. The, 21 the inch was telly. a big TV. 21-inch, that was it. And then when, when it went widescreen, it was yeah. well, when it went widescreen, it was 32-inch, and then the first generation really of all the, the big flat screens, it was 42. Yeah. It was probably the biggest you were getting. Yeah, you basically had a choice in the shop, didn't you? Do you want portable or do you want big telly? Big telly, okay, here's our 21-inch yep. range. Yep. Maybe That's a 24-inch right. at a stretch, but yeah. Um, and 32-inch now, I only wanted a 32-inch for my lounge when I last bought a telly because it's not a very large lounge. You don't sit far mm. away from the telly. 32-inch was plenty big enough. It was so yeah. hard to find a decent 32-inch telly. You know, everything was it just made for a cheap caravan TV, yeah. Yeah, mm. so hard. Anyway, good answer that. Yeah, driving games on the big telly. Good answer. Um, Dave, do you want to read the next answer? Short and sweet. Lost Chapter 7063 says all of them. That's that it. is the That's point the there, answer. I guess. Just saying <laughs> any enough. game's better on the big telly. I don't think we can dispute that. Chris? <laughs> ah, what we got next? C64 Blockbusters. C64 minutes blockbusters of, from Limey uh, Tank. Limey yeah. Tank, oh yeah, sorry. Minutes of family fun. Minutes of family fun. <laughs> 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 I nearly missed that. <laughs> and other, answers, there. other answers include uh, Rambo on the C64 by Rowan Forrest. Shepo, oh, Shepo 71, Ridge Racer looked great on a 20-minute TV. Do the voice. TV. Do the voice. Do the voice. voice. Ridge, Ridge Racer That's great on a 21-inch TV. Um, Lord Borak 316, Bomberman on the big TV. Yeah, a big TV brings out a lot in multiplayer gaming because you get a bit more screen real estate per person. I mean, you get the same number of pixels. The pixels are just bigger, uh, which is why I think a lot of people have said Goldeneye in the answers as well because you can mm. just see a little bit better what you're doing. Uh, and I chucked in an answer. For me, it was Kickoff 2 on Big Telly 
we got it down there in the morning, summer holidays, and we'd have a whole day of f- football rivalry, me and my brother on Big Telly in the lounge. Because it's not Good just the Lord. Big Telly. You've got to remember, you get the sofa too. Sofa's yeah. a big part of it. Mm. Yeah. 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 You're not just on your cheap little plastic chair on wheels. You've got the whole sofa to sit on. So long as all anyway. the stretched. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, with all your leads stretched, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking that. <laughs> Usually we're still sat on the floor because, well, the Spectrum Plus 3 is the one I remember. The, the cables weren't long enough to go to the couch. So yeah. it was just sitting on the floor, yeah. So our question of the week this week then, it goes back to our first story about level one gaming. Quite simply, what is the greatest ever level one in a video game for you? That's it. That's What's the question. What's your favourite and why? What's your favourite and why? Doesn't you know? We're not necessarily saying you've got to pick the best games. What's your favourite? Why is it important to you? What did it teach you? Any, anything extra you want to elaborate on um, to tell us about your favourite level one? That's it. Uh, head over to reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro to take part. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us today. Do make sure you head over to youtube.com forward slash at crg. Anywhere else they should go looking for you, Glenn? No, it's really just YouTube. Just YouTube. Oh, you'll um, find me there. His fantastic videos there. Dave? I know Neil I'll... said that and Neil introduced Glenn as doing lots of Amiga videos. He certainly does do lots of Amiga videos. He's particularly the the, 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 the ATX Amiga build, really interesting. But he also does PC mm-hmm. stuff as well. Glenn mm-hmm. doesn't just do Amiga, so there's more to it. Even if you're not that big an Amiga fan, there's more to see there. I'll try to so cover so a little so bit of everything. Videos. <laughs> but we like Amigas um, as always thank you for taking the time to watch take care and we'll see you next week bye bye waving even Glenn's waving <laughs> bye bye folks This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RNC The Cave Chris from 005 Agima and Dave it was produced by me Duncan Styles podcast version of the show is available to your favorite podcaster including apple podcast and spotify and the video version is available on the this week in retro youtube channel Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Sorry, were you saying something? I was just sitting here reading Pixeladic magazine. It's the most up-to-date version that I could get from the shop in Australia, <laughs> which is issue 12. And I've already got issue 13 because I bought that when it was in the UK, um, which is also not the current issue. I think we're on issue 14, I think.
Yeah, yeah. So I've got lots of out-of-date issues, which is fine because it's a retro magazine. Oh, Acorn and the BBC Micro. Oh, that's part two. Where was part one? You can tell I haven't read every issue. <laughs> Where was part one? Yeah. I just like buying it and holding it and flicking. I read I read them as much as I ever read magazines, which is flick through, and if any picture grabs my attention, then I'll stop and start paying attention. <laughs> do you know what I mean? That's how I always read magazines. That's how I still do. 